0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of distal radius fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Distal radius fractures are the most common orthopedic injury and generally result from a fall on an outstretched hand. Diagnosis is made clinically and radiographically with orthogonal radiographs of the wrist. Treatment can be non-operative or operative depending on fracture stability and fracture displacement as well as patient age and activity demands. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence of distal radius fractures, these injuries account for 17.5% of all fractures in adults. In terms of demographics, distal radius fractures are more common in females in a two to three to one ratio. Distal radius fractures have a bimodal distribution. It is seen in younger patients due to high energy mechanisms and older patients due to low energy mechanisms. For example, a fall on an outstretched hand. In terms of anatomic location, 50% 50% of distal radius fractures are intraarticular. Risk factors for distal radius fractures include osteoporosis. Therefore, there is a high incidence of distal radius fractures in women greater than 50 years old. Note that distal radius fractures are a predictor of subsequent fractures, and therefore DEXA scan is recommended for women with distal radius fractures. Moving on to the etiology of distal radius fractures, as far as pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury is typically a fall on an outstretched hand, which is the most common mechanism in the older population. High energy mechanisms are more common in younger patients as we previously mentioned. Associated conditions with distal radius fractures include DRUJ injuries, radial styloid fractures which indicate a higher energy mechanism, and know that soft tissue injuries are seen in 70% of distal radius fractures. TFCC injury is seen in 40% of patients, scapholunate ligament injury is seen in 30% of patients, and lunotriquetral ligament injury is seen in 15% of patients. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy about the distal radius. The distal radius is responsible for 80% of axial load. It articulates with the scaphoid via the scaphoid fossa, the lunate via the lunate fossa, and the distal ulna via the ulnar slash sigmoid notch. The distal radius is comprised of three columns, the radial column, the intermediate column, and the ulnar column. The radial column includes the radial styloid and scaphoid fossa. It functions as an attachment site for the brachioradialis tendon, long radiolunate ligament, and radioscaphocapitate ligament. It also serves as a buttress to resist radial carpal translation. It functions as a load-bearing platform for activities performed with the wrist in ulnar deviation. It also holds the carpus out to length radially, allowing a more uniform distribution of load across the scaphoid and lunate facets. Finally, it also serves as an anchor for the radioscaphocapitate ligament that prevents ulnar translation of the carpus. The intermediate column includes the lunate fossa and functions to transmit load from the carpus to the forearm. Finally, the ulnar column includes the TFCC and distal ulna and functions for stability of the DRUJ as well as forearm motion. Moving on to the classification of distal radius fractures, the ones to know include the Fernandez classification, which is based on the mechanism of injury, the Frickman classification, which is based on joint involvement, that is radiocarpal and or radio ulnar, plus or minus ulnar siloed fracture, the Malone classification, which divides intraarticular fractures into four types based on displacement, and the AO classification, which is a comprehensive classification but it's cumbersome. Some common eponyms of different types of distal radius fractures include a punch fracture, which is a depressed fracture of the lunate fossa of the articular surface of the distal radius, Barton's fracture, which is a fracture dislocation of the radiocarpal joint with intraarticular fracture involving the volar or dorsal lip. Know that you can have a volar Barton or dorsal Barton fracture. A Chauffeur's fracture is a radial styloid fracture. A Collie's fracture is a low-energy, dorsally displaced extra-articular fracture. And a Smith's fracture is a low-energy, volarly displaced extra-articular fracture. Moving on to the presentation of a distal radius fracture, the history is usually a fall on an outstretched hand. Symptoms include wrist pain, wrist swelling, and wrist deformity. Moving on to physical exam, inspection may reveal ecchymosis and swelling, diffuse tenderness, and a visible deformity if the fracture is displaced. Motion is typically limited by pain. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and oblique. As far as findings, the radiographic criteria should assess for radial height on the AP, the radial inclination on the AP, the articular step-off on the AP, and the volar tilt on the lateral. So know that normal radial height is 13 millimeters, and the acceptable criteria is less than 5 millimeters of shortening. Normal radial inclination is 23 degrees, and acceptable criteria is a change in less than 5 degrees. Normal articular step off is congruous, and acceptable criteria is less than 2 millimeters of step off. Finally, normal volar tilt is 11 degrees, and acceptable criteria is dorsal angulation of less than 5 degrees or within 20 degrees of the contralateral distal radius. A CT scan is indicated to evaluate intraarticular involvement, and it's also useful for surgical planning. An MRI can be indicated to evaluate for soft tissue injuries, like TFCC injuries, scapho-lunate ligament injuries, or a dorsal intercalated segment instability, otherwise known as a DZ deformity, as well as lunotriquetral injuries, or volar intercalated segment instability, otherwise known as a VZ deformity. Now let's talk about the treatment of distal radius fractures, which can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes close reduction and splint-slash-cast immobilization. Indications for this include extra-articular injuries, less than 5 millimeters of radial shortening, as well as dorsal angulation of less than 5 degrees or within 20 degrees of the contralateral distal radius. Operative options include closed reduction percutaneous pinning, otherwise known as a CRPP, and open reduction internal fixation, otherwise known as an ORIF. CRPP is indicated for extra-articular fractures with a stable volar cortex, and as far as outcomes, there is 82 to 90% good results if used appropriately. ORIF is indicated for radiographic findings indicating instability, and note that pre-reduction radiographs are the best predictor of stability. ORIF is also indicated in the setting of dorsal angulation of greater than 5 degrees or greater than 20 degrees of the contralateral distal radius. It's also indicated for volar or dorsal comminution, displaced intraarticular fractures greater than 2 millimeters, radial shortening greater than 5 millimeters, associated ulnar fracture, however note that associated ulnar styloid fractures do not require fixation. Other indications include severe osteoporosis and articular margin fractures, such as dorsal and volar Barton's fractures. Note that the volar ulnar corner, otherwise known as the critical corner, supports the volar lunate facet with its strong radial lunate ligament attachments. Failure to address this fragment can result in volar carpal subluxation. Other indications for ORIF include comminuted and displaced extra articular fractures, which are Smith's fractures. Die punch fractures are also indications as well as progressive loss of volar tilt and radial length following close reduction in casting. External fixation can be indicated for open fractures, highly comminuted fractures, and in medically unstable patients unable to undergo a lengthy procedure. As far as outcomes of external fixation, it's an important adjunct with 80-90% to 90% good-excellent results. However, note that external fixation alone cannot reliably restore 10 degrees of palmar tilt. Therefore, it is usually combined with percutaneous pinning techniques or plate fixation. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with close reduction and splint slash cast immobilization, as far as the reduction technique, this will typically require adequate anesthesia. You will then apply longitudinal traction and volar slash dorsal pressure to the distal fracture fragment. As far as immobilization, be sure to avoid positions of extreme flexion and ulnar deviation. This is also known as the cotton loader position and you should avoid this due to the risk of carpal tunnel syndrome. In terms of rehabilitation, know that there's no significant benefit of physical therapy over home exercises for simple distal radius fractures treated with cast immobilization. As far as outcomes, know that repeat closed reductions have less than 50% satisfactory results. You should also be aware of the LaFontaine predictors of instability, where radial shortening is the most predictive of instability, followed by dorsal comminution, severe osteoporosis, associated ulnar fracture, dorsal comminution of greater than 50%, palmar comminution, and intra-articular comminution, dorsal angulation of greater than 20 degrees, initial displacement of greater than one centimeter, and initial radio shortening of greater than five millimeters. Know that there is a higher loss of reduction with three or more of the LaFontaine criteria. Also remember that meta-analyses and systematic reviews demonstrate no difference in functional outcomes between closed treatment versus operative methods in elderly patients defined as greater than 65 years old. Complications specific to close reduction and splint-slash-cast immobilization include acute carpal tunnel syndrome as well as EPL rupture. Moving on to CRPP, techniques include the Copangie intrafocal technique or the ray technique with arthroscopically assisted reduction. The Copangie intrafocal technique involves K-wires that are placed dorsally into the fracture and used as reduction tools until they are driven into the proximal radius. Complications specific to this treatment include radial sensory nerve injury and pin tract infections. Moving on to ORIF, be sure to go over the technique guides for distal radius extraarticular fracture ORIF with the volar approach as well as the dorsal approach. Types of ORIF include volar plating and dorsal plating. Volar plating is preferred over dorsal plating, however volar plating is associated with irritation of both flexor and extensor tendons. Rupture of the FPL is most common with volar plates, this is associated with plate placement distal to the watershed area, which is the most volar margin of the radius closest to the flexor tendons. Note that in the setting of volar plating, you can have hyperesthesia over the base of the thenar eminence due to palmar cutaneous nerve injury during retraction of the digital flexor tendons when plating the distal radius. Note that new volar locking plates offer improved support to subchondral bone. Dorsal plating is indicated for displaced intraarticular distal radius fractures with dorsal comminution. Historically, this is associated with extensor tendon irritation and rupture. As far as the technique for ORIF, you can combine with external fixation and percutaneous pinning if needed. You can perform bone grafting if the fracture is complex and comminuted. Studies have shown improved results with arthroscopically assisted reduction. Finally, note that the volar lunate facet fragments may require fragment-specific fixation to prevent early postoperative failure. Complications specific to ORIF include screw penetration into the radiocarpal joint, or DRUJ. Be sure to assess the intraarticular screws with a 23-degree elevated lateral view. You should also assess dorsal cortex penetration with a skyline view. Other complications specific to this treatment include tendon rupture. Finally, let's go over external fixation, and be sure to review the technique guides for distal radius fracture spanning external fixator as well as distal radius fracture non-spanning external fixator. Types of external fixation include a spanning X-fix and a non-spanning X-fix. A spanning X-fix is useful for fractures with smaller articular fragments, while non-spanning X-fix is useful for fractures with large articular fragments. The technique of external fixation relies on ligamentotaxis to maintain reduction. Remember to place the radial shaft pins under direct visualization to avoid injury to the superficial radial nerve. Be sure to avoid over-distraction, as carpal distraction should be less than 5 millimeters in the neutral position, and excessive volar flexion and ulnar deviation. You should also limit the duration of external fixation to eight weeks and perform aggressive occupational therapy to maintain digital range of motion. Complications specific to external fixation include malunion, nonunion, stiffness and decreased grip strength, pin complications, which include infections, fractures through the pin site and skin difficulties, and neurologic complications such as iatrogenic injury to the radial sensory nerve, median neuropathy, or reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Know that pin side care comprising daily showers and dry dressings is recommended. Now let's go over some complications of distal radius fractures. And the ones to know include median nerve neuropathy, otherwise known as carpal tunnel syndrome, ulnar nerve neuropathy, EPL rupture, FPL rupture, radiocarpal arthrosis, malunion slash nonunion, ECU or EDM entrapment, Compartment syndrome, and reflex sympathetic dystrophy slash complex regional pain syndrome. So, starting with median nerve neuropathy or carpal tunnel syndrome, this is the most frequent neurologic complication and is seen in 1 to 12% of low energy fractures and 30% of high energy fractures. Know that you can prevent median nerve neuropathy or carpal tunnel syndrome by avoiding immobilization in excessive wrist flexion and ulnar deviation, otherwise known as the cotton loader position. Treatment for median nerve neuropathy or carpal tunnel syndrome is acute carpal tunnel release. Indications include progressive paresthesias as well as weakness in thumb opposition and paresthesias that do not respond to reduction and last greater than 24 to 48 hours. Ulnar nerve neuropathy can be seen with DRUJ injury. Moving on to EPL rupture, know that non-displaced distal radial fractures have a higher rate of spontaneous rupture of the EPL tendon. This is because the extensor mechanism is thought to impinge on the tendon following a non-displaced fracture and causes either a mechanical attrition or a local area of ischemia in the tendon. Another risk factor for EPL rupture is volar plating with screw fixation that penetrates the dorsal cortex and is proud dorsally. Treatment of EPL rupture is an EIP to EPL transfer. Moving on to FPL rupture, very distal volar plate placement on the radius that is distal to the watershed line is associated with FPL rupture, this is due to the physical contact of the tendon on the plate and subsequent tendinopathy. Radiocarpal arthrosis is seen in two to 30% of distal radius fractures. As far as incidents, know that 90% of young adults will develop symptomatic arthrosis if there's an articular step-off of greater than one to two millimeters. However, patients may also be non-symptomatic. Moving on to malunion slash nonunion, in the setting of intra-articular malunion, treatment will be revision at greater than six weeks. In the setting of extraarticular angulation malunion, the treatment will be an opening wedge osteotomy with ORIF and bone grafting. Finally, in the setting of radial shortening malunion, know that radial shortening is associated with the greatest loss of wrist function and degenerative changes in extraarticular fractures. The treatment will be ulnar shortening. Moving on to ECU or EDM entrapment, risk factors include DRUJ injury. Finally, let's quickly talk about reflex sympathetic dystrophy or complex regional pain syndrome. In terms of prevention, the AOS 2010 Clinical Practice Guidelines recommend vitamin C supplementation to prevent incidence of RSD postoperatively. Finally, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of distal radius fractures. Know that poor functional outcomes are associated with workers' compensation, low socioeconomic status, low education levels, and low bone density. Successful outcomes correlate with accuracy of articular reduction, restoration of anatomic relationships, and early efforts to regain motion of the wrist and the fingers. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. Which of the following distal radius fractures is associated with volar translation of the carpus relative to the radial articulation? And the choices are 1. Displaced impaction fracture of the lunate fossa. 2. Displaced intraarticular fracture with a fragment consisting of the volar ulnar corner. 3. Displaced radial styloid fracture. 4. Displaced extraarticular fracture with apex volar. And 5. Displaced extraarticular fracture with apex dorsal. The correct answer to this question is 2. Displaced intraarticular fracture with a fragment consisting of the volar ulnar corner. So a displaced intraarticular fracture with a fragment containing the critical volar ulnar corner rim of the distal radius would result in volar translation of the carpus. To quickly review, distal radius fractures are one of the most common orthopedic injuries and can result from low energy trauma in older and osteoporotic patients or high energy trauma in young patients. Intraarticular involvement poses treatment challenges for these fractures as the fragments are crucial to articular stability and are difficult to achieve fixation with traditional distal radius plates. Fractures with intraarticular comminution of the distal radius that involves either the dorsal or volar rim of the lunate fossa, which can destabilize the radiocarpal joint, can lead to volar or ulnar translation of the carpus. Orbe et al. performed a retrospective review of patients undergoing either hook plate fixation or volar opening wedge osteotomy for volar marginal fragment distal radius fractures. For the patients treated with hook extension plates, there was a 90% success rate in the prevention of volar subluxation of the carpus. For patients that required volar open wedge osteotomy to redistribute joint loading forces in those that developed avascular necrosis of the volar marginal fragments, all patients had improved pain, function, and radiographic concentric reduction of the radiocarpal joint. They concluded that hook plate fixation provides an effective means of fixation of a volar marginal fracture of the distal radius with volar opening wedge osteotomy as an effective salvage procedure. O'Shaughnessy et al. performed a retrospective study of hook plate fixation of distal radius fractures with volar marginal rim fragments. There were no patients in the study that lost fixation of the volar marginal fragments after treatment with hook plates, with the most common complication being symptomatic hardware requiring removal of both the traditional plate and the hook plate. The authors concluded that hook plate fixation provides a highly effective means of distal radial fragment fixation that is not amenable to traditional plate fixation. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, displaced impaction fracture of the lunate fossa is incorrect as impaction fractures of the lunate fossa do not result in translational instability of the carpus. Answer 3, displaced radial styloid fracture is incorrect as a radial styloid fracture can result in ulnar translation of the carpus if the fragment is large enough to involve the large radiocarpal stabilizing ligaments. Answer four, displaced extra-articular fracture with apex volar is incorrect, as an extra-articular fracture of the distal radius with apex volar angulation may have dorsal comminution, but there is no added risk of volar carpal translation. Finally, answer five, displaced extra-articular fracture with apex dorsal is incorrect, as an extra-articular distal radius fracture with apex dorsal angulation leads to volar tilting of the articular surface, but there is no volar translation of the carpus. Moving on to the next question, a 45-year-old female barista from Portland fell off her skateboard and sustained a closed distal radius fracture. The patient undergoes open reduction internal fixation, or ORIF. Posto-operatively, she is given a prescription with the goal of mitigating a potential adverse outcome. Which of the following has evidence to support its utility in this clinical situation? And the choices are 1. Alendronate 700mg once per week for 3 months. 2. Vitamin C 500mg once daily for 50 days. 3. Alendronate 70mg once per week for 3 months. 4. Vitamin C 200mg once daily for 50 days. And 5. Vitamin C 1500mg once daily for 100 days. The correct answer to this question is 2. Vitamin C 500mg once daily for 50 days. So there is some evidence to support that vitamin C 500 milligrams PO taken daily for 50 days may decrease the chances of developing complex regional pain syndrome or CRPS following ORIF of distal radius fractures. To quickly review, complex regional pain syndrome is generally classified as type one in which symptoms develop in an absence of specific nerve injury or type two in which there is the presence of specific identifiable nerve injury. The diagnostic criteria includes pain disproportionate to the inciting event and a combination of sensory, vasomotor, pseudomotor, and trophic signs. Treatment often involves a combination of physical therapy and pharmacologic treatment, nerve blocks, or chemical or surgical sympathectomy. However, success is mixed, therefore prevention is paramount. Given that the etiology is thought to involve a traumatic incident that elicits an overwhelming systemic inflammatory reaction causing disproportionate pain and increased vascular permeability, it is hypothesized that the administration of vitamin C as a free radical scavenger may protect the vascular endothelium and reduce the incidence of complex regional pain syndrome. Prophylactic administration after management of distal radius fractures is supported by moderate evidence as per the 2013 AOS guidelines on the treatment of distal radius fractures. Zollinger et al. performed a double-blinded randomized controlled trial of 427 wrist fractures allocating patients to receive placebo or 200, 500, or 1500 mg of vitamin C for 50 days. The authors found that in the vitamin C group, the incidence of complex regional pain syndrome was 2.4% while it was 10.1% in the placebo group. They showed no difference in relative risk between the 500 mg and 1500 mg groups. The authors concluded that vitamin C reduces the prevalence of complex regional pain syndrome and a daily dose of 500 mg for 50 days is recommended. Koval et al. comprehensively reviewed controversies in the management of distal radius fractures. The authors highlight the evidence supporting vitamin C use in treating disproportionate pain. However, because there is no objective measure for the diagnosis of complex regional pain syndrome, the evidence remains limited. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, Alendronate 700mg once per week for 3 months is incorrect as a prospectively randomized controlled trial was conducted to evaluate healing rates in patients following administration of 70mg of Alendronate weekly for 3 months and there was no difference in clinical outcomes or healing between control and experimental groups. Answer 3, Alendronate 70mg once per week for 3 months is also incorrect as Alendronate has not been shown to be beneficial in this setting. Answer four, vitamin C 200 milligrams once daily for 50 days is incorrect as the recommended length and dose of treatment is vitamin C 500 milligrams for 50 days. Finally, answer five, vitamin C 1500 milligrams once daily for 100 days is incorrect as studies have shown no difference between 500 milligrams and 1500 milligrams. So a daily 500 milligram dose is recommended by the AOS. And moving on to the final question, A 76-year-old male sustains a minimally displaced distal radius fracture and undergoes closed treatment with a cast. Four months post-injury, he presents to the office with an inability to extend his thumb. Which of the following injuries is the most likely cause of this finding? And the choices are 1. Extensor pollicis brevis rupture, 2. Posterior interosseous nerve palsy, 3. Adhesions within the first and third dorsal wrist compartments, 4. Dorsal wrist septic tenosynovitis, and 5, extensor pollicis longus rupture. The correct answer to this question is 5, extensor pollicis longus rupture. So in this scenario, rupture of the extensor pollicis longus, or EPL, is the most likely cause of his acute inability to extend his thumb. This is seen in 3-5% to of non-displaced distal radius fractures treated non-operatively. The mechanism of tendon rupture is currently unknown, although the pathogenesis involves tenosynovitis of the EPL. There is likely a contribution of an ischemic insult at the time of injury as well. Edema and tenderness are seen over the EPL in the region of the dorsal wrist in nearly every instance. Roth et al. noted an incidence of 5% EPL ruptures in non-displaced distal radius fractures and found that it occurred at a mean of almost 7 weeks post-injury. The cardinal signs of injury included an inability to extend the thumb and dorsal radial wrist edema slash pain. Scoff reported a 3% incidence of EPL ruptures in a retrospective series of 200 distal radius patients. He recommends a third dorsal wrist release in the pre-rupture setting and extensor indices proprious to EPL transfer after rupture occurs. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, extensor pollicis brevis rupture is incorrect as EPB rupture is not commonly reported after these injuries. Answer two, posterior interosseous nerve palsy is incorrect as PIN palsy is not frequently noted after non-displaced distal radius fractures and would typically occur in the intermediate post-injury period. Answer three, adhesions within the first and third dorsal wrist compartments is incorrect as adhesions would limit but not prevent active extension. Finally, answer four, dorsal wrist septic tenosynovitis is incorrect as septic tenosynovitis would also likely limit but not prevent active motion. please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.